Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 144, The Liberals Get Their Chance. First, I'd like to thank our newest patron, Peter Palov. Uh, oddly enough, we got one patron in the like 24 hours since recording the last episode. Thank you very much, Peter. Opportune timing. Now, last time, Bulgaria's politics got messy very quickly, as Prince Alexander became increasingly frustrated with his position. Less than fair elections saw the liberals dominate once again, and the resulting National Assembly quickly dissolved into a dysfunctional shouting match. By contrast, elections in eastern Rumelia created an assembly which ran exceptionally well. Now, just after it began its work, Alexander dissolved the assembly, creating yet more animosity between him and the liberals. Alexander was betting on constitutional change, but was told, in no uncertain terms, no by St. Petersburg. Now, after fresh elections returned another huge liberal majority, the prince has finally caved in and asked the liberal, well, I said the leader of the moderate wing of the liberals, Dragan Tsankov, to form a government. But I want to start by highlighting a specific source of growing tension between Alexander and many of the Russian officials in his army. According to the constitution, the prince was the commander-in-chief of the army. Now, the combine this kind of if you combine this with his military experience, he was an officer and you know helped serve in the uh, Russo-Turkish War. This meant that he was very keen on military affairs and was very interested in leaving his mark in this area. Now, in theory, this shouldn't have been a problem, as the Russians also wanted the Bulgarian army in tip-top shape as soon as possible, in case it needed them for anything. You know, Russia saw Bulgaria as an ally; it wanted its allies strong. However, each side wanted this done in their own particular way. Obviously, the Russians wished to model the Bulgarian army on their own and ensure its loyalty. Alexander, on the other hand, wanted to implement what he saw as a superior Prussian kind of systems and tactics uh, in his army. And to do this, he wanted to import hundreds of German officers to train and lead the Bulgarian soldiers. However, the Russian, who served as Bulgaria's minister of war, rejected every single German appointment and had no interest in seeing German influence seep into the Bulgarian army. Although he claimed that this is a constitutional issue and that these officers would have difficulty communicating with the men they were to lead, but eh, maybe those played a role, but it was really he did not want German influence. Now, the resulting feud between these two men got so intense that the prince refused to even inform the minister of cabinet meetings. Now, Baransov, this minister of war, was additionally angered by the fact that, well, the prince, although being a prince and outranking him, was still a 22-year-old lieutenant telling him, a very experienced Russian military commander, what to do. So, yeah, there was a lot going on here, and the two men, well, there was no love lost, let's say. Now, I skipped over this in the last episode, but a little bit back in November of 1879, all this kind of came to a head, and the two men ended up in basically a shouting match. 
The Russians were ready to inform the emperor about this whole affair, but Prince Alexander wanted to keep this disagreement between them, and so agreed to a compromise to keep his uncle from getting angry at him. In exchange for allowing two German officers through and keeping the entire argument out of the emperor's knowledge, Alexander agreed to basically drop the whole thing. An agreement was made, but the sources of the conflict remained. Bulgaria was being partly run by the Russians, who owed their allegiance to the emperor in St. Petersburg, as well as, in theory, to the prince in Sofia. Still, the minister of war was ultimately recalled back to Russia, along with several other high-ranking Russian officials, and new officials arrived to replace them around April 1880, when this episode begins. It should by this point go without saying that the new batch of Russian officials also had wildly divergent views over Russian policy in Bulgaria and in no way represented a single cohesive policy for Russia in this country. Fun fact though, Bulgaria's new minister of war was a Russian general who was actually ethnically a Finn. He was born in Finland. And so I was surprised to learn that Bulgaria at some point in history has had a Finnish minister of war. I just thought that was interesting. All right, so while all this was happening, more serious preparations were beginning to ultimately join Bulgaria with Eastern Rumelia. We've talked before about how both states have been ensuring that their administrative systems, or tax systems, the way their governments are structured, all this kind of stuff is as identical as possible so that when they do eventually join together, it will be very smooth and seamless. With this in mind, in April, Eastern Rumelian government officials traveled to Sofia to begin negotiations over how unification could and would ultimately happen. At the end of the month, they signed an agreement, and about a month later, an assembly of Bulgarian Revol- of the Bulgarian Revolutionary Committee groups, or a couple of them, was held in Slevin, which further worked to appoint a kind of central committee in charge of potential revolutionary activities which might be needed to obtain unification. In other words, the two governments are kind of formally signing, formally signing agreements and working together, but unofficially there's also, you know, armed groups working to make this happen. Uh, these revolutionary committees more in the principality, and as we talked about last time, these gymnastic societies in eastern Romelia. Meanwhile, the liberals were, as we talked, finally fully in charge of government and were very eager to make some progress on their key policies. At this moment, the problems facing Bulgaria were mounting. For one, the country's economy was suffering from the dual shocks of suddenly being disconnected from Ottoman markets. Uh, You imagine, you know, over five centuries, Bulgarian merchants and uh, sellers and manufacturers, they'd all become very used to being in the Ottoman market. And it's, you know, you can't kind of readjust those overnight. You know, it's kind of like with the, the COVID pandemic, all the supply chains getting disrupted. You know, you, you set all the, you set up all these systems uh, and you have all these relationships for buying and selling goods and things. And you can't just change all that overnight. It's very difficult and economies suffer when that happens. So Bulgaria is suffering thusly, even though it's technically still in the Ottoman Empire, there's still some shifting around to do. In addition, the Bulgarian economy has to become used to the fact that basically now there's it's easier to import goods from the rest of Europe, and so local manufacturers are also facing more competition and resulting lower prices. And to top it all off, there's the, it now seems a perennial problem of 
brigandage, which we've discussed in previous decades in this podcast. So there are still robbers and brigands in the Bulgarian countryside and the mountains all around. Now, around May of 1880, an actual full-scale battle erupted between Bulgarian army forces and some brigands about halfway between Varna and Burgas, while additionally the wife of the Russian general Skobolev, who had fought very hard in Bulgaria's liberation, was murdered by brigands while traveling in Bulgaria. Together, these, well, so actually before we get to that, I mean, so you can see the brigandage was a serious problem, enough that there were full-scale battles going on, important people were being murdered, and, well, spoiler alert, this is going to be a problem in Bulgaria for quite a while. So, together, these economic challenges and the challenge of kind of lawless brigands, which are in a way kind of interconnected, because if the highways, if the roads aren't really safe, uh, that also makes economic activity difficult. And together, all these forces meant that the liberals were facing a very difficult situation, but they were determined to make use of the power that they now had. Of course, the conservatives were determined to stop all of that. Their plan was to get Tsankov thrown out and replaced by Petko Karavelov, who at this time, as we know, was the president of the National Assembly. Their reasoning was that Karavelov did not have an understanding with the prince and had made many more political enemies. And so if Tsankov was out and Karavelov was in, well, Karavelov would be a lot less able to enact the Liberal Party agenda. Now, one other tactic of the conservatives was to turn Austria-Hungary against the liberal government. To this end, a conservative published an article in a Vienna newspaper writing that, quote, the liberal party must in fact be called pan-Bulgarian. Its program is the Treaty of San Stefano. It therefore threatens the peace in the East, it is restless, and if it seizes the reins of government, it will endanger the tranquility of Europe, end quote. So, they're tr clearly trying to kind of raise alarm bells and, and turn, I mean, frankly, not just Austria-Hungary, but all the great powers who participated in writing the Treaty of Berlin against the liberal government. But Black points out that while this did alarm the general public, the government in Vienna, well, they knew. They knew what was going on. They knew better. They could see right through this. They were fully aware that Bulgaria was at this time totally unable to exert a major policy that Russia opposed, and they were very aware that Russia opposed kind of reinstating San Stefano or anything like that. And as I just mentioned, Russia's main officials in Bulgaria had just been replaced. So yeah, it was clear to the, the Viennese government and to the governments of the great powers that uh, this is a lot of bluster. Now, on the topic of those new Russian officials, that Finnish minister of war, well, he generally kind of stayed out of politics. But the new Russian consul attempted to expand Russian economic influence in Bulgaria, but found the liberals were just as determined to preserve Bulgarian independence in the terms of kind of e economics. And, well, they were just as determined as the conservatives had been. So this idea of kind of expanding Russian economic power in Bulgaria was being blocked. And many Russian, many Russian officials actually saw the liberals as their natural allies and were pretty frustrated at this development. So kind of a, an interesting ongoing kind of trend in these Bulgarian-Russian relations. Very often, Russia will assume that like, okay, these are our friends, these guys will do what we want, and they're endlessly frustrated by the fact that their kind of Bulgarian partners in government, you know, want to see themselves as partners and not as kind of subservient. And very often it seems that the Russians, their idea of how this relationship should work is that they tell 
their Bulgarian allies what do, and the Bulgarian allies just do it, no questions asked. This is also kind of a trend we'll see a lot in the remainder of this podcast. So, all that is to say the Tsankov government was on its way, quickly doing things like creating new administrative boundaries in the country and generally running into some policy problems early on, despite a few successes. These problems were mainly financial. Now, as I mentioned before, Bulgaria was in the difficult position of being obligated by treaties to finance the completion of that railroad from Vienna to Constantinople, which passed well, the portion between their territory, uh, and to purchase the varna russe railway line from the British at a very inflated price because that railway line was basically useless now that the Danube was freely navigable. The Russians also wanted Bulgaria to ignore its treaty obligations, despite in other areas commanding strict adherence to the treaty, and ignore that, well, at least postpone the kind of Orient Express line from Vienna to Constantinople, and instead build a railway line from Russe to Turnovol, Sevlievo, Sofia, and Kustendil, which would help Russian economic interests. And obviously the Austro-Hungarians wanted the line from Vienna. So, as usual, all these great powers want different things from Bulgaria. Bulgaria also has its treaty obligations, which it had no part in deciding. And to top it all off, they don't have a lot of money to make any of this happen. Now, Tsankov managed to delay settling this issue for a few months before finally deciding to focus on the undoubtedly more important Vienna to Constantinople line. Now, luckily for him, he managed to push Russian anger over this towards the prince and the conservatives, even though he was the one that kind of made the decision. But even with that taken care of, the financial challenges remained. Ultimately, the Russians, they, they didn't want to upset their allies in Austria-Hungary, and so they eventually accepted Bulgaria's decision to focus on the Vienna to Constantinople railway. Now, back to Petko Karavelov. So, I talked about financial problems. Well, in addition to being president of the National Assembly, Karavelov was also minister of finance. In this role, he did things like establish the lev as Bulgaria's currency around this time, but he was perhaps better known for being ruthless in his tax collection. Black writes how, quote, in collecting taxes, which he did with great zeal, his principle was that the easiest taxes to administer were those to which the people were already accustomed. He therefore made no essential change in the tax system inherited from the Turks, end quote. Now, when it came to spending these taxes, to quote Black again, quote, he did not approve of spending money on aiding industry or agriculture or on railroads, but considered schools and roads as the first necessity, end quote. So, at least pretty prudent there. Now, Black goes on to mention that budgets were tight, uh, in particular because at this moment, the Bulgarian government was already spending about half of its entire revenues on the military. And this is another trend we're going to see play out a lot more in the rest of this podcast. Now, that summer, the National Assembly did introduce a 10% tax on production. But due to protests, the government allowed citizens to pay either in cash or in kind. In other words, farmers could sell their crops and pay the tax in cash or just give the government 10% of their harvest. Still, obviously, many peasants, the backbone of the Liberal Party support, were quite annoyed with the Tsankov's government's uh, aggressive taxation. Now, Tsankov had also been making enemies in the church when, under pressure from the great powers, 
he ordered that all baptisms of Muslim children and marriages of Muslim women to Christian men during the recent war be annulled. Now, the idea here was that these marriages and conversions were likely done basically under duress uh, and that they weren't fair for that reason. But still, the decision enraged many in the Orthodox establishment. When he also proposed reorganizing the church and moving power from the bishops down more towards everyday priests, relations only worsened. Now, in this matter, the Russian Orthodox Church also sided with its Bulgarian counterpart, kind of further adding up to those who were angry at Sankov's proposals. Now, lastly, there was the military. Officially, Bulgaria was only supposed to have something like a defense force and not a proper army. However, Prince Alexander and the Russians had more or less ignored this, kind of another example of how, in some areas, Russia insists on very strict adherence to the Treaty of Berlin, while in other areas, eh, who needs the treaty? We can ignore it. Now, the liberals saw this growing military force, I mentioned taking half the budget, as a potential political tool of the prince which could potentially be used to stage a coup d'etat. So to counter this, the liberals began to establish militias under the command of civil officials from each of the provinces. Uh, if you're American, you think of these as kind of national guards, right? Um, smaller versions of the military that are under the control of the various states. But unsurprisingly, Prince Alexander strongly opposed this and saw it as an assault on his authority, because again, he was technically commander-in-chief of the army. And by arguing this, he easily blocked the liberals from implementing this plan. So, as relations between the liberals and the prince steadily worsened, Stefan Stambolov jumped into the fray and published an article titled The Constitution is Violated in the, in the Liberal Party newspaper. Now, it was about an issue I mentioned before where Prince Alexander was angry that according to the Constitution, he was to be, ad, ad, he was to be addressed as Svetlost or Sereneness instead of Visechestvo or Highness, which he considered more appropriate. I know, at least to me, this is a real eye roll. Like, come on, dude, chill out. But still, to Alexander, this is a very important issue. And the liberals were, were kind of willing to scream about violating the Constitution over, you know, what he's called in, uh, in public. Now, going beyond even this article, by August, Stambolov, as well as Pencil Slavikov, were holding rallies, and in particular held a large one in Ternovo, condemning the prince and triggering similar rallies in other towns and cities across the country. Ultimately, Tsankov broke with this wing of his party and chose to address the prince the way he wanted, and the whole issue really just created anger all around. At least, you know, Tsankov didn't annoy the prince in this case, but everyone's angry at everyone, more or less. And as the months wore on, Tsankov lost yet more allies within the Liberal Party. Obviously, Stambolov and Slavikov were quite angry at him over his choice here. Now, a new book I found on this period that I'll be quoting on occasion, uh, Mikhail S. Rekun's book, How Russia Lost Bulgaria, 1878-1886, Empire Unguided. Now, in this, uh, Rekun writes how Tsankov was soon, quote, getting into an argument with the French over how much a French financial advisor should be paid, with the British over how the Bulgarian failure to dismantle the old Ottoman fortifications, and with the Austrians by first promising to support them in replacing the European Danube Commission and then failing to do so, end quote. A lot of details, but all that is to say, 
During this period, Tsankov is annoying and frustrating a lot of the members of his own party. Generally, you know, his party is kind of aggravating a lot of its peasant base. Tsankov is occasionally getting along well with the prince, but still annoying him in some areas, and at least his party is. And Tsankov is in various issues, angering the British, angering the French, and angering the Austrians. So all that is to say, again, everyone is angry at everyone. That's the that's the short version of this period of Bulgarian politics. Now, over the following months, kind of leading from late summer into early autumn 1880, more and more organizations and newspapers were founded, as you'd expect, right? New country, new freedoms, people are founding all kinds of organizations and newspapers to obtain various aims and to promote what they would like to promote. But in particular, many were making the case for Bulgarian unification with Macedonia. And all this was happening while the political situation in Sofia, we could say, was kind of simmering. But while Bulgarians were arguing to the great powers and forming committees, the Serbian government had been directly aiding rebel bands in Macedonia and Kosovo since the end of the war. The Serbian revolutionary Nikola Rasic had spent much of 1879 and early 1880 fighting battles with the Ottomans before taking pretty serious losses and choosing to return to Serbia. In response, private bands of Turks and Albanians began organizing as well, upsetting many local Christians. The kind of tit-for-tat acts of revenge by Christian and Muslim bands was by this point escalating towards a larger conflict as the Ottoman, Bulgarian, and Serbian governments all used spies and other tools to try to influence event in this territory that they either controlled or coveted. But on October the 14th, the Bursiak Revolt finally broke out, a, I'll say, largely Serb-led affair based in the western portion of Macedonia, further away from the Bulgarian principality. It was, however, largely led by a Bulgarian bishop of Ohrid, who was at the time in the Bulgarian principality. So all that is to say, it's complicated. There's a fair amount of debate over whether this revolt should be considered Bulgarian, Serbian, broadly Christian or Macedonian, you know, everyone's got their opinion. You know, it's interesting to, yeah, that for me, like this book, Historia uh, Bulgaria of Dati, which is otherwise very exhaustive on all kinds of events related to Bulgaria, doesn't mention it. But my impression looking at, you know, I don't, couldn't find a lot of sources on this, was that it's mostly Serbs leading it with some Bulgarian participation. Make of that what you will. Now, regardless of the specific goals of those leading the uprising, again, I couldn't find a lot of what they specifically were aiming to do. For now, fighting is occurring between these various Christian, you can say, bands and Ottoman, Muslim, Albanian, and Turks, further reinforcing the arguments made to the great powers that leaving these territories to the Ottomans was a mistake. Now, of course, while all this was happening, Bulgarian politics continued to look more inward as infighting and scandal plagued the Tsankov government. As relations continued to worsen, his government finally became untenable for Prince Alexander, and Tsankov was finally dismissed. Alexander, for his part, would have much preferred a new constitution or at least some amendments, but for now he had to be content with just getting a new prime minister, the fourth in the country's very short history. Now, interestingly, in a parliamentary democracy under a monarch, a prime minister would usually be dismissed when parliament is dissolved or when that prime minister faces a vote of no confidence by their own party. But 
In Bulgaria at this time, personal animosity between Alexander and his various prime ministers would mean that often he will, as in this case, dismiss them personally while not dissolving parliament. So, yeah, sorry for the bit of political science. Again, there's going to be quite a bit more of that as we go on in this podcast. So, this means that the National Assembly was still in place. It didn't change. And that Alexander needed to appoint a new liberal prime minister. As the conservatives had been kind of aiming for, he chose the president of the assembly, Petko Karavelov. Now, when Karavelov took over as prime minister, he was replaced as president of the National Assembly by Suknarov, whose deputy was the young Stefan Stambolov. So that wing of the party is now kind of rising a bit in the assembly. Now, even before Petko Karavelov took over as prime minister, he was leading the National Assembly to be, let's say, more aggressive against their political enemies. Many conservative members were barred from the assembly on shaky legal grounds, or at the very least forbidden from speaking, which the conservatives gradually kind of stopped doing at this time. They just sort of gave up, like, what's the point in us saying anything? In November of 1880, the assembly put forward a bill to grant Karavelov extraordinary power to take actions when the assembly was not in session. Worryingly, the law specified that these powers would not transfer to his successor. It's kind of a a classic, slightly more authoritarian style of giving one person special powers without a specific kind of reason and being clear that it's only them that gets these powers. You know, all this anger and animosity was building up to the point that in December, there was actually a fistfight in the chamber. Sadly, I couldn't find any details about kind of who started or what happened, but one of my books mentioned this fistfight. Then, to top it all off, a series of proposed constitutional amendments was proposed in the main Liberal Party newspaper. These amendments would have transformed the role of the prince to that of more of a figurehead, and unsurprisingly, that infuriated Alexander. Now, to be fair, this, uh, these articles and these amendments were not Caravello's idea. He was the head of the part, but you know the fact that he was the head of the party formally when they were published in the party, party's newspaper meant that the anger of the prince fell on him and he got the blame. Now, by the end of 1880, Prince Alexander was pretty despondent, and he confessed to his personal chaplain that, quote, This very last session has again proved to me that the, con- the present constitution is not suited to the country. The nation suffers under it. Count Milutin upbraided me on the occasion of my last stay in St. Petersburg because I had not made a sufficiently long attempt to govern by means of the Constitution. He can no longer address such a reproach to me. I have made yet another earnest endeavor. I have borne everything and am ready to bear still further, but I do not see how I am to comply with Russia's demands and wishes. End quote. So, You can decide whether you think he's being fair here, but, uh, you know, in Alexander's own mind, he's done everything he can to govern under the Constitution, but he just cannot. He's not making any progress, and he's deeply, deeply frustrated. Now, ironically, despite what the conservatives thought, Prince Alexander actually began to like Karavelov quite a bit more than any of the previous prime ministers. You might wonder why. I mean, Karavelov was a bit of a firebrand, but... Why would they get along so well? Well, it was simply because Karavelov had a very clear communication style and was evidently just easier to get along with. So 
At the very least, Alexander appreciated that when Karavelov made a decision or something that he could clearly explain why, which I can kind of understand, right? We can all tell that this period of Bulgarian politics is extremely messy and muddy and just very difficult to wrap your head around. And so dealing with someone who's very straightforward is probably refreshing. However, despite getting along well with Karavelov personally, the prince was also convinced that the liberals were still very dangerous. To quote Black, quote, The conclusion he reached was that the liberals were a subversive group of intriguers who were more skillful in creating trouble than in keeping order. He saw no reason why he should be restrained any longer by the regulations set up by the Bulgarian and Russian nationalists at Turnival, end quote. In other words, he saw the liberals as basically illegitimate and didn't see why he should have to follow the constitution in dealing with them. Black goes on to point out that the liberal dominance was in part because they had managed to connect themselves with the revolutionaries who had fought for the Ottomans, which kind of made their electoral victories guaranteed. And this made sense, right? We talked about how the conservatives largely represented the Chorbajis and that the Chorbajis, for the most part, kind of supported the Ottoman status quo against the revolutionaries. So, you know, they made that case well, but uh, there was a case to be made, let's say. Um, I think... You know, personally thinking about politics and history, I see it as a bit analogous to that of the African National Congress following the end of apartheid in South Africa. It was pretty difficult for any other political party to really challenge them because they very clearly represented the people who had just fought for the independence. Well, in that case, not the independence of the country, in that case, the end of apartheid, but you get the analogy. But the conservatives were not resigned to their position. By late 1880 and early 1881, they saw their opening. Worsening relations between the Liberal Party and the monarch, along with peasant frustration over the government's harsh taxation, seemed to offer them hope of a potential political victory. Their newspaper, Bulgarian Voice, published a denunciation of the Liberal leaders. Um, Well, many of them, and here's a quote from one sample. Quote, The leaders of this party were Karavelov, Tsankov, and Slavikov. Karavilov is an avowed nihilist, which had, to be clear, a nihilist at the time kind of implied terrorist. That is to say, a member of that sect which desires the destruction of society. Is it possible for such a man to tolerate a constitution which, on the contrary, is the very bulwark of society? Tsankov is a former Turkish civil servant, a person who was born and brought up in the midst of illegality itself, in the midst of Turkish anarchy. Is it possible for such a person to tolerate a constitution which is the basis of law and order? Slavikov is the very personification of disorder. He is a man who does not know the meaning of law and order, and is it therefore strange that he should have tried to overthrow the assembly for the purpose of preventing the establishment of law and order in Bulgaria? End quote. So yeah, they, they had words for all the liberal leaders. Of course, the fact that the conservatives were presenting themselves as ardent defenders of the constitution is a bit ironic because they too had tried to undermine it for political gain while in power. Uh, But in 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 any case, they wanted to link the liberals with chaos and disorder. And, well, it's with that that I'll wrap up today. Petko Karavelov is the new prime minister, and despite personal good feelings, his position is pretty rocky as fighting between his party and the conservatives intensifies. Prince Alexander is more frustrated than ever with his position and is looking for a way out. Around this time, the Ottomans are also seeking to, well, seeking to and 
finding some success in suppressing the Bursiak revolt in Macedonia, and, well, only time will tell what will happen to the Bulgarian political system and to the people in Macedonia. Turks, Greeks, Albanians, and all manner of Slavs. For all of whom, well, understandably fear for their future probably at this time. Next time, all of Europe will be rocked by shocking news that one of its leading figures has died unexpectedly as Bulgaria continues to struggle to find its place in the world. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast. Pretty limited for right now, but I'm going to try to get that going when I can. And yeah, look at the uh, link below for more information about this episode.